0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We have finally, we are finally today going to get to the end of Luke 9. Uh, Interestingly, we started Luke 9 at the beginning, before summer hit us. And uh, and now we'll finally get to the end of chapter 9. Luke, as I've been pointing out, chapter 9 is a sort of a pivot point in the gospel of Luke. Uh, There's a lot of things going on in the gospel of Luke. Luke, in in chapter 9 specifically, and a lot of it revolving around the apostles and Jesus' interaction with his 12 closest disciples. So at the beginning of chapter 9, he he empowers and sends out his 12 uh, to do the work of spreading the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. He even empowers them to heal diseases and cast out demons in the name of Jesus at one point, he's together in chapter 9, he's with his disciples, and he asks them that, uh, that crucial uh, question, who do you say that I am, the question that every disciple of Jesus has to answer at some point in his or her life, and he asks his apostles, who do you say that I am, and they confess, you are God's Christ, you are God's Messiah, the one sent. Now, they don't fully understand that, what that means and what that entails, but there's this faith. They trust who Jesus is, and then he begins to explain to them what exactly that means that he's the Messiah. He has come to die, that the Messiah has come, and that he will be rejected and despised by not. The Romans out there, but by their own religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers. And he will eventually be handed over to die. Uh, delivered over, he tells them. Uh, delivered not necessarily just by uh, the priests, but delivered ultimately by the Father in heaven. Handed over into the hands of men. He has explained these things now twice to his disciples. He's taken three of his disciples up onto a mountain where where the Father has unveiled, unmasked Jesus' glory, shown to them, revealed to them the full glory of the Son of God, even announcing to them, this is my Son, the Chosen One. Listen to him. They've seen, again, Jesus' display of power in casting out demons. And he finishes uh, by explaining a second time that he is going to be handed over into the hands of men. And so you'd think that the disciples now they're really starting to get it. I mean, they've seen his glory, they've seen his power, they've heard him, they've, the father himself has said, "Listen to my son." They've they've confessed that he is the Christ. You'd think that they are ready now. They are ready to follow Jesus. You would you would think that. But you would be wrong. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 9 on page 1031 in the Black Bibles. Beginning in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So when I was a kid, growing up in northern Ohio, uh, in the fall, I loved going to the Cuyahoga County Fair. In fact, growing up in northern Ohio, it's nowhere near the capital of Ohio, and so it wasn't until like my teenage years I even knew there was a thing called a state fair because for me, the Cuyahoga County Fair was the end-all of all fairs I loved everything about the county fair I loved the unsafe rides I loved the unhealthy food I loved the unwinnable games I loved it all everything about it but I think what I loved most was that at some point in our time at the fair we would go to the fun house which even as a child I thought it was an ironic name because it was not very fun. Uh, it was a little intimidating. It was even frightening at times. When you entered the funhouse, there were rooms where the dimensions were just slightly off, and it felt really strange. And you started at one end of the room, and you felt giant, and you got to the next end of the room, and you felt super small, and you didn't know how they did that. And then there were those plexiglass mazes that you were tr- supposed to try to work your way through, and the only clue that you had that there was a wall in front of you was the snot and oil from the kid before you who hit the wall with his head, and you had to go slow to see where those snots smears were. There were the rooms that were like rocked back and forth with giant punching bags rocking back that you had to kind of weave your way through, Were the long hallways with the spinning spirals trying to like knock you over the whole time. But I loved most was the end of the funhouse. I would endure all of that because at the end of the funhouse, it was just humorous. It was just fun because you came to this room full of mirrors but they, they weren't right. Like there was something wrong with every mirror. You'd stand in front of one mirror and you were 12 feet tall and 11 feet of you was head. Or you'd stand in front of another mirror and you had, you like, you'd wave back and forth and everything was distorted and like you could look at yourself and then look at your friend and everyone looked goofy and just off and it was just fun and you laughed and it was enjoyable. And it was enjoyable because you were in this room where it was supposed to be distorted. I mean, imagine if our windshields did that. Like, that would be less fun, wouldn't it? Driving down, I mean, it might be more amusing, driving on 95, but definitely less uh, livable. Or your glasses, if your glasses did that. You know, they make those, uh, they make those glasses, have you seen them, uh, that uh, they mimic being drunk? like you put those glasses on and like things swerve and sway and they really i mean so i don't know i don't even know where you would pick those up they seem like something fun to like replace you know your spouse's glasses in the on the nightstand see what happens that would be enjoyable anyway uh, we look at this passage of scripture and it's like what is wrong with these disciples What is wrong? Everything they are looking at is distorted. Like, they have a distorted view of themselves. They have a distorted view of others. They have a distorted view even of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And, like, the short answer, obviously, is, well, sin. Sin is what's wrong. Sin distorts our view. And I get that, but is there a specific sin? Is there a specific issue? And I think, specifically here, what we're looking at is pride. I think that when we look at these passages, these sections together, we see that pride completely distorts how we see the world, how we see ourselves, our community, those outside of our community, even how we see Christ and the cross. The first passage seems to have to do with pride and yourself. Pride distorts how you see yourself. In verses 46 to 48, the the disciples, on the heels of Jesus saying, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, we are told they have an argument over who's greatest. And not an argument that includes Jesus, by the way. Like an argument of like, well, of the rest of us, who's the greatest. I mean, it could be that they're thinking, well, if Jesus says he's going to die, so who's going to take over here? So one of us has to step up. I wonder who's the greatest. And it may not be that they're even thinking, well, I'm the greatest. Maybe they're just like, I don't even care if I'm number one. I just want to know who numbers 10, 11, and 12 are. Because, like, I mean, I'm sure I'm not number one. And am Peters', Peter, oh, the rock. But I, I just don't want to be one of these. I, I'd leave, I just want to know who I'm better than. Isn't that ridiculously familiar. <laughs> I just want to know who I'm better than. Pride is, it is the, you might even say pride is under almost every sin we commit. I mean, there's some aspect of pride in every sin we commit. Some aspect that says, I know better I deserve different. It's pride. That's pride, messing with our minds, distorting our view. Pride, you know, pride is at the heart of the fall of Satan. You know, we're, we're told that there's this passage in Ezekiel that says it's talking about the king of Tyre and his downfall, but as you read it, it gets weird and it's like, well, because he used to live with God and he used to talk to God regularly and then he got proud and he wasn't, it wasn't enough just to be acknowledged by God, he wanted to be God and you start realizing this doesn't seem like he's talking about a normal king anymore. It was pride, in fact, uh, Paul warns Timothy that as you're looking for elders and deacons, that like uh, those who uh, give into the, the temptation or the fall of Satan, it's, it's this aspect of pride in their hearts. Pride is, in, in one sense, underneath the sin of Adam and Eve. Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, Did God really say, I'm telling you, you don't need to listen to God. You can do this your way, and everything would be better. Pride is obviously beneath the murder of Cain, of his brother Abel, unwilling to hear a reproof from God about his sacrifice. Pride is at the heart of the Tower of Babel. We will build a way. We will reach heaven by our own works. Pride drove the anger of Moses. Pride drove the adultery and murder of King David. Why do we envy? You know, when other people have good things going on in their lives, why do we get envious? It's pride. I think everything good happening in the world should be happening to me. I can't rejoice with you over something good in your life because it's not happening in my life. And when I see something good in your life, it just makes me angry about that good thing not being in my life. Or why are we arrogant? Well, it's pride. I think everything good in my life is because I deserve it. I've done what I need to. You don't have those things? That's probably because you're not as good as me. You should line up next to me. You should be more like me. I'll write a book. It'll help you. I deserve to be happy. I'm worth it. Follow your dreams. All of these things are all centered on pride. And in response, Jesus takes a child Brings a child into their midst in verse 48. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Now the trouble is I don't know if his illustration conveys to the 21st century in a day and age where we idolize and worship our children, where everything about our lives revolves around our children and what they want. It wouldn't be, it doesn't communicate, these are the least, these are the lowest. Associate with these. In that time, in that culture, children were at best to be seen and not heard, and that's at the highest level. Uh, there are writings of Jewish rabbis who talk about how it is a waste. Of time and effort to even educate a young man who's under 12 years old. And I know every 10 year old boy is saying, Amen, amen. (laughs) But that wasn't the point of the rabbi. Children took up space, they require feeding and watering and clothing and bathing, and they do nothing to contribute to the welfare of your household or of society. They are purely a drain. They are the weakest. I'm just talking about the culture there. I'm not talking about like what I think. I mean, I'll, I can tell you what. Anyway, <laughs> the, culturally, they were viewed as just they were the weakest, lowest. There was nothing that a child could do for you. Maybe you could set them outside on a corner to beg, but that was it. I'm not saying that theirs is a good view of children. I'm just saying it's the opposite of our view of children today. Where our, like if we look at our calendars, we realize children are not really the least of these anymore. If we look at our calendars, we realize oh, children are the most important thing in the world. But Jesus' point is, who are the least? Who are the overlooked? Who are the ones in society that, that you think that will give me nothing? Associating with that person, associating with that group of people, associating with those folks, I get nothing out of it. It's purely pouring out. Jesus says that. Do that and you'll be great. Be the least. Associate with the ones you think are the least. You want to be Great be the least and you will be great in God's eyes. Look for opportunities to serve others without anything coming back. Because pride distorts how we see ourselves. But pride also distorts how you see your circle, your your tribe, your People. In verses 49 to 50, it says that John answered. In other words, John is hearing Jesus' sort of rebuke about their argument about greatness, and he realizes, hey, well, we're not always fools about this stuff. In fact, Jesus one time, uh, in fact, recently, there's this, there's this guy who, he, I mean, like, he's, he's casting out demons, And so what's John's issue with him? We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we've tried to stop him because, why? Because he does not follow with us. See, the guy is casting out demons in Jesus' name. So it's not that he's not following Jesus. It's that he's not following with us. He's not one of us. He's not one of our group. Pride can show up in the ways that we have this sort of us and them mentality. Uh, Even within the church. They don't use the confession we use. They don't ignore the confession we ignore. They don't use the instruments we use. They don't Sing the songs we sing. They don't worship the way we worship. They don't ordain the people we ordain. Sure, they're caring for others in ways uh, that we uh, don't seem to be able to do. It's a little ironic, I think, that John is complaining about a guy casting out demons, tried to stop him from doing the very things the disciples weren't able to do when Jesus came down the mountain. It's easy. Pride blinds us to our inabilities and just focuses on what's, well, they're not doing it exactly the right way. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Don't, don't stop them. Don't stop him. I mean, the one who's not against you is for you. Now, in chapter 11, it's going to look like chapter 11 of Luke, which at this rate will be in like June of 2024. Uh, But in chapter 11 of Luke, it's gonna look like Jesus says the opposite, but he doesn't, but it's gonna seem like he does. And when we get there, I'll show you that it's not the opposite. It's a completely different statement that he's making. But here, he's saying, listen, if they're not against you, they are for you. It's amazing how how pride can make us suspicious of everyone who's not in our tribe. I love in Romans 14, 4, Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Like, we're not the master of these other folks. The Lord is their master. And if the Lord is able to make them stand, then they will stand. And it's not for us to cast judgment on that or just despise them for that. This isn't, uh, this isn't a cry or a call for kind of wishy-washy ecumenicalism where like beliefs don't matter, but it's a reminder that, that it's before God that each Congregation, that each person who is seeking to serve Christ is before God that he has to answer. It's God alone who, to whom he, he will answer. If they're not actually against you, then maybe they're for you, which does raise a natural question, doesn't it? Well, what if they are actually against me? I mean, okay, so there's people that aren't against me, but then there are people who are against me And isn't it interesting that pride also distorts our view of our enemies? Pride distorts how you see your enemies. In verses 51 to 56, now we're going to breeze through verse 51 and come back to it. It's kind of an important verse in the book of Luke. But suffice it to say that what we're told here is that Jesus is sort of leaving Galilee and heading to Jerusalem. This is a, like, it's a, in Luke, it's the beginning of what's called the, the travel traveling to Jerusalem narrative. Uh, so it's an intentional change in what Jesus is doing, but he's going from Galilee to Jerusalem. So Galilee's up north, Jerusalem's south, and so when you would travel from Galilee to Jerusalem, uh, you had two opportunities, two ways that you could go. So one, you could, here's Galilee, here's Jerusalem. So if you're with me, then you could go from Galilee to Jerusalem. Pretty straightforward. Head south, enter Jerusalem from the north, easy as pie, done. The other way that you could go to Jerusalem from Galilee, is you could, from Galilee, so I'm going to do this from your perspective, I think. So you're going to go east. Is this east? So you're going to go east and cross the Jordan River. Then you're going to go south. And then you're going to go west and cross the Jordan River again. And then you're going to come into Jerusalem from the south. So some of you have GPS Uh, You know, like Google or Waze, and like you can tell it, avoid things, you know, avoid toll roads, avoid traffic, uh, avoid, what are the things you can avoid? What's that? Avoid highways. So the GPS that the Jewish people in first century uh, Judea had, they could type in, avoid Samaritans. And it would take them on this strange circuitous route to Jerusalem, because from Galilee to Jerusalem. In the middle was Samaria. And the Jews hated Samaritans. Now, in all fairness, the Samaritans hated the Jews. Which, by the way, so like we're not we don't we don't have time for like a big lesson on all of this, but let me just start with like they're like the same, they're the same, by the way. They have their bloodline. They can trace all their blood, like the Samaritans are uh, partially Jewish, and so that means that like, they, they all trace their blood back to Abraham, which means like, they all have the same like, founding documents for their nation, but they hate each other. They're like, yeah, but you're ruining it. No, you're ruining it. No, no, you're ruining it. No, no, you're ruining it. And doesn't that sound silly that people in, from the same nation who have the same founding documents for their nation would like, yeah, like look at each other as if they're the enemy? That just, like how ridiculous A country would you have to live in to see something like that. But this is just, this is how silly it is in first century. Or did I say 21st century? I don't remember. But coming back to the Jews and the Samaritans, they hate each other. But Jesus doesn't care. Jesus says, so we're going to go through Samaria, and we're going to go to Jerusalem. And so he he gets to Samaria, and as is his custom, he sends a couple guys out. He says, hey, go make some space for us, get us a room, get us an inn so we can stay. But the Samaritans hate the Jews just as much as the Jews hate the Samaritans. And when they hear and learn that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's not staying there, they're like, no, no, you can't stay here. You can't stay with us. And so James and John being the fine Christian disciples that they are, ask Jesus the question. So Jesus, do you um you want you want us to like call down fire from heaven to consume that village? Now, see if I were Jesus, this is where I say, yeah, after you cast that demon out. So <laughs> you're going to you can't even what are you but he doesn't do that. But he does Rebuke them. In fact, it's the exact rebuke word for when he rebukes demons. Like, he rebukes them as strongly as he does demons. And then does this weird thing. They go to another village. (laughs) Which, by the way, is what he said to them to do at the beginning of chapter 9, when he said, when you go to a town and they don't receive you, just knock the dust off your sandals and move on. Just move on. Because you don't know. We don't know what God is doing in the lives of his enemies, do we? Some of you didn't grow up in the church or didn't grow up as young believers. You remember a time when you were not following Christ and then a time when you were following Christ. Imagine if the day before that change someone came and decided to cast judgment on you for your faith or lack of faith. Isn't it amazing the patience of Jesus that no judgment came that day and you were lost and now you're found? The Samaritans will, many will come to Christ. In fact, it's recorded in the book of Acts, Luke's next book, that many of these enemies of Israel will become followers of Christ. And in a beautiful spin, Jesus will send John as one of the two disciples into Samaria to see all that Christ has done in saving them. And John will be involved in praying and calling down the Holy Spirit to fall on the believers in Samaria as the Holy Spirit fell on the believers in Jerusalem at Pentecost. It is hard to leave the enmity of others in God's hands, isn't it? I mean, we want to get even. We want to get back. Again, Paul writes in Romans 12 Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, but live in harmony with each other. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. And as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But pride says they need, they need to get what's theirs. They need to get what's coming to them. They need to get receive double for what they've given. We want to get even. We want vengeance. And then finally, we come to this section where we realize that pride doesn't just affect our horizontal Relationships does it? But pride affects our relationship with God, our willingness to follow Christ. Pride distorts how you view your Savior and how you view commitment. You know, you've got these three men in this section about following Jesus. This one guy comes up and just boldly proclaims, I will follow you wherever you go. See, pride causes us to make these huge Commitments without even considering what we're committing to. Jesus says, will you? I mean, do you understand the cost of following? Would you follow me if, if it costs you some of your comfort? Would you follow me if, if it costs you your, your home or your livelihood? Would you follow me if it costs you your, your life? This man is offering commitment out of naive ignorance. The second man, Jesus calls him. He says, follow me. And he says, okay, I'll follow you, but but first let me go bury my father. Seems a little harsh, Jesus' response. Let the dead bury the dead. It's like, hey, hey, whoa. What is he saying here? He says, you, listen, I'm calling you to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm reminded, as I was reading about this, like, even today, but especially first century, like when, you're, when a person dies in Jewish culture, it is at most 48 hours, maybe 24 hours, and they're buried. Like they don't wait around. Like you get buried. They don't care where family is. They don't care how long it's going to take. 24 to 48 hours, the body is in the ground. It's a cultural thing. Uh, it's a religious thing. Um, so the idea that this guy's father is dead, and he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to go talk to Jesus for a little while. Like, that wouldn't happen. He'd be very much involved already in the burial of his father. What is happening here is, hey, my dad is close to death. I will follow you, but not yet. There are other things that have priority over following you. When I take care of those, then I'll follow you. Pride messes up our priorities. Pride says, well, first I've got to take care of me. First I have other things. First I have this and this and this. And then, once I take care of those, then I'll follow Jesus. And then third, this guy says, yeah, I'll follow you, but, but let me go say goodbye first. It's not... It's not priority or naivete. It's uh, it's hesitancy. So yes, I'll follow you. Well, I mean, I mean, I'll. I, well, hold on, just just a minute. Wait, just wait a minute. There's this hesitancy in following. And the thing is, like, we look at this and we're like, wow, this is this is me. This is how I follow Jesus. Like, either I make very naive commitments of, oh, yes, I'll follow, you. oh, wow, that was hard, or my priorities alter how willing I am to follow, or my hesitancy to follow. Isn't it incredible that, like, again, like, the, none of this shows up in Jesus. I mean, it shouldn't be incredible. I mean, it's the Son of God, but, but Jesus' commitment, Jesus' following is always intentional, always eyes wide open, always the priority is love the Father, save the sinners. That's his priority. It's why he came. It's why verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus, just in this passage, he is set, he is intentional His priority is to die on the cross for sinners. This one, this Christ, this Son of God, this chosen one, the one who alone on all the earth has a reason for pride. Like of all the people on earth who could be proud, we would have to say, well, Jesus gets a pass because he has every right to be proud. And he humbles himself. Philippians 2, he humbled himself. He, he took on the form of a servant. He, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus didn't cling to his equality with God, but he emptied himself for us. Jesus doesn't promote himself. He comes in humility, in meekness. He says, come to me, all of you, because I am meek and lowly. He received children. He received beggars. He received lepers. He received prostitutes. He received proud fools like you and me. Jesus didn't come in spite of our pride. Jesus came because of our pride. He came in humility to deliver you and me from the power of our sinful pride. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And he's now, he even now in his exalted state. He's humble. He intercedes on your behalf, on my behalf. He stands as advocate next to us every time we give in to pride. Jesus your advocate who made propitiation for your sin who satisfied the wrath of God he stands in humility with you and for you and he has poured his spirit out so that by the gracious presence of the spirit of God we can actually we can actually kill pride we can actually follow Christ in In loving others, in dying to ourselves, in living for Christ out of humble gratitude and amazement for what he has done to deliver us. Following Jesus as he sets his face to the cross is our only hope. Following Jesus to the cross is the only way that our pride will be killed, will be crucified that we will be able to remove the distortion lenses from our eyes and see ourselves as we truly are, sinners saved by grace, to see our community as it truly is, a bunch of beggars who someone gave the bread of life to. We'll see our enemies as they truly are, those in need of the mercy of God. And we will delight to follow Jesus wherever he would call us. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your humility, for your love, for your mercy that you have shown to us very proud sinners. Would you grant us the humility of Christ? to love others more than we love ourselves to see the crying need of everyone for the love of Christ and for his sacrifice would you grant to us that if we boast at all it is in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf in Jesus name amen